Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Brad Kearns to tell you about Organifi Green Superfood Powder. This is a great tasting green powder. It's amazing, but true. Mix it in water and it's delicious. So you'll use it every single day to get a nice dose of greens, especially if you're traveling, especially if you're trying to go keto and you're not eating that many carbs. This is a great way to ensure that you get all the nutritious benefits in a variety of fruits and vegetables. Mix it in your smoothie. I mix it with my ketone supplement. So even when I'm not eating, I get my greens every single day. Why don't you try some? Go over to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, and enter the code PRIMAL at checkout, and you will get 15% off your first order. Enjoy! Howdy, howdy, Primal Endurance Podcast listeners. It's Lindsay. I'm back with something different for you today. I want to apologize for my voice. I have a cold for the first time in years, which means, yes, I have dropped several beats off my target math heart rate when I'm running right now until I recover. But that's an aside. Um, what I'm bringing you today is actually a conversation I had with Dan Party. I met Dan at PaleoFX where he gave a really interesting talk on sleep. But Dan knows just a lot about a lot. He is the CEO of Human OS, and he's a researcher at Stanford and the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. And I had a really interesting conversation with him. We talked about the quantified self and the ways that athletes and non-athletes might measure their health and the benefits and the potential drawbacks of doing that. And the conversation took some really interesting little meanders, and I hope that you guys enjoy hearing it as much as I enjoy talking to him. He, as you will hear, is just a really interesting and really knowledgeable guy. So before we get into it, though, I just want to remind you that the long-awaited Primal Endurance Mastery course is now available. So this is where Brad took the Primal Endurance book and just absolutely brought it to life. He interviewed all sorts of experts on everything from training to movement economy to recovery to sleep to strength to coaching to technique. I mean, it's everything in the book and then just so much more. So if you're interested in doing a deep dive into the primal endurance philosophy, this is where you want to go. If you're interested in getting more information about it, you can check it out at primalendurance.fit. That's where all the information about what's included and how to order is. And then also, I wanted to remind you guys that if you're interested in asking me any questions, crowdsourcing any questions that you might have about training or lifestyle or fueling or anything like that, I'd like to encourage you to come join our Primal Endurance Facebook group. It's separate from our Primal Endurance Facebook page. So go into Facebook, go into the Groups tab, search for Primal Endurance and request to join. I will approve your request and then you can ask any questions and just chat with like-minded athletes. And it's a really great resource for anyone who is using the Primal Endurance training and eating philosophy or thinking about doing so. So again, that's our Primal Endurance Facebook group. Or you can always reach me at info at primalendurance.fit. You can email me there and you will get a personal reply from me. But you can always find me hanging out in the Primal Endurance Facebook group. So that's where I'd like to encourage you to go first. So without any further ado, let me turn you over to our conversation with Dan. I think that you're going to get a lot out of it and I hope that you really enjoy it. 
Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much. I know you're a super incredibly busy guy with all sorts of impressive stuff on your resume, and you are taking the time to talk to us today, and I'm really, really appreciative of your time. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've got going on with your various ventures and let our viewers and listeners know why you're on our podcast today? Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I really enjoyed meeting you this year at Paleo Effects <clears throat> as well. And I've been looking forward to our chat. So I have been working in health sciences my whole career. So was an athlete growing up, played basketball and soccer and was a terrible swimmer. And uh, I suffered some injuries when I was younger. And that made me have a closer, that that sort of motivated me to have a different sort of relationship with my body because I was trying to solve some issues early, early in my life so that I could get back onto the playing field and perform at my best. That led to an interest in sports medicine, which really was more of an interest in physiology, which I figured out over the course of my academic career. And I ended up getting a master's in exercise phys. Um, and there's different tracks that you can take in exercise physiology. On one end, it can be much more application-based. So how do we understand how the body performs in uh, to regulate physiology in different types of conditions, whether you're in you know, really hot environment or it's very humid or cold or this food coming into the body. So there's lots of different ways to, to sort of probe uh, those questions and then identify opportunities for us to perform well in myriad circumstances. So that's one idea. The other sort of range of exercise physiology is then to look more at sort of the basic science, which was what I gravitated towards there. And uh, what we were studying at Florida State at the time was looking at the central regulation of body fat. So how does the brain orchestrate the entire cascade of energy regulating processes that keep your body fat within a fairly narrow range? What happens when that breaks or things go wrong? And just very interested in that subject. Uh, after that, I worked in, I worked for Dr. Ornish, Dean Ornish for about a little less than a year and very interesting experience. We worked with over a hundred different prostate cancer patients to do a multifactorial lifestyle intervention that had a dietary component, exercise, stress management, interpersonal communication skills with your spouse, mm -hmm. all sorts of things that would affect the internal milieu of hormones circulating in your body. And whether or not you sort of believe in any particular one approach, the idea of looking at more of a comprehensive lifestyle approach versus just one, one variable um, was compelling to me, and it made a lasting impression. So I knew I wanted to get back to that eventually. From there, I went worked in bioinformatics, uh, which is looking at high-powered computing to mine human genome to look for. At that time, the human gen genome hadn't been sequenced, mm -hmm. and so that was part of what our company was trying to do: is using what are called clustering and alignment tools to then sequence the human genome for the first time. So we were competitive with uh, several other organizations that were doing that, and then eventually I went from there to work in the pharmaceutical industry for about a decade. I did sales for two years, and then I worked in medical affairs. I founded the medical affairs department for Jazz Pharmaceuticals and then uh, ran the research grant program and scientific publications for the company. And that was great because I got to interact with, I knew nothing about sleep, mm -hmm. and then I learned a lot about it, and I got to interact with a lot of the top names in the field. Uh, and at one point we were supporting over 30 different trials and the, the drug that I was working with was, I don't know if I would have been happy just in any pharmaceutical job, but mm -hmm. the drug itself and sleep is, are so interesting mm -hmm. that it stayed interesting for the, the, the decade that I was there. I left there to, to basically start two different things. I started my PhD because I had questions of my own that I wanted to address at this point. I had 
several of my own publications looking at gamma hydroxybutyrate, which is the drug that I was working on, uh, and how it affected different systems of the body. And uh, I was encouraged by somebody who was a reviewer of one of my papers to go do a PhD with him in the Netherlands, which was cool. So, like I already want, I always wanted to do that, and here was my here was a great chance. So I do work with the uh, neurology and endocrinology departments at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And I also work with uh, the Jamie Zeitzer Circadian Biology Lab at Stanford. So I'm mostly there. I don't go to the Netherlands that much, but we collaborate over Skype, et cetera, and it works great. And what I do is I look at how ecologically relevant amounts of sleep loss, which means not a full night of sleep deprivation, but just getting a, missing a few hours here and there, how that influences both hormones and also decision-making. How is the brain wiring rewired or the functional connectivity suppressed so that it leads to a different behavioral outcomes the next day, different decisions, different levels of vigilance, uh, something called effort discounting, kind of a case of saying like, screw it. I just, <laughs> you know, you're so not willing to work hard uh -huh. for something that you care to achieve. Uh -huh. So lots of interesting stuff there. Uh, and then at the same time, concurrently, I had <clears throat> was thinking about my, my work with, with Ornish and, um, and by the way, I was a total peon there. I was like, you know, carrying boxes and stuff. I wasn't doing any like sort of serious scientific lifting, but it was a good opportunity to be a part of it, that big trial. Um, but now I was thinking, how can we, you know, if we really want to affect health for a lifetime, it's a behavioral challenge. Uh -huh. We have to not only have good information, but we also have a way, have to have a way that empowers people to, <clears throat> excuse me, to, uh, become better at their health in all different ways. And so I developed a, a model called the Loop Model to Sustain Health Behaviors. And the executive summary of that is quite easy to, to understand, but it asks four questions. So in order for somebody to adopt and sustain health patterns long-term, it's good for them to understand why they should do something, how they should do it, if they're doing it, and if it's working. And so you see it's four different components. One of them is like the idea that captivates the mind, like, yeah, this is worthwhile to pursue. Then the next, the next part is translating that concept into actionable steps across a 24-hour period of a day, 168-hour period of a week. Am I doing it as a whole different area? Can I get feedback that helps me stay aligned with goals that I've set for myself? Um, so getting objective feedback. And then lastly, is it working? That's another level of feedback that you perhaps would test periodically to then say, Here, let me get some deeper insight into my body to know if the efforts that I'm putting in are leading to results that I would want. And then, so not only do you do some sort of sampling of your health, but then you also look at the trajectory of that sample over time. So it's time series records. And that right there can really facilitate, I consider faith in a system is working right. for you. So if you, you try something, you're, com you're kind of compelled by the, the, you believe in the science, you understand how to do it, you try it, you know that you're doing it and you get good results from it. Out of the myriad of options of how to live in this world, that might enable you to have more confidence to stay with something and, and stick with it longer term. Right. It becomes a part of your identity versus something that you've just tried or did periodically or did you know for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. so, so that's essentially the concept. And I released, sort of went through different iterations of uh, developing this concept. Um, so Dan's plan was released first, and that helped me formulate some of the tech around these ideas, but it was just a fraction of like the, the model. And soon I'll be release, releasing humanos.me. Uh, and that is a much fuller version of the model. So if you go back to what that model is for the, why should I do something? We're creating peer reviewed health courses mm -hmm. 
which is a extraordinarily valuable, I think, contribution to what's needed today because there's a lot of information. But what we do when we create a health course is we do a, a very serious scientific review of the literature. We analyze analyze the literature for what we think are the most important components for somebody to know in order to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. We synthesize that information and then present it in a manner that is intended to have the learner retain that information for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now, you would you don't want to necessarily retain all of it, but these courses are not, you know, semester long, but they're more like an hour, like half an hour to 90 minutes. And so they're almost like executive summaries of the main findings of something that can you can benefit from the rest of your life. So if you take a course, learn that information, you can then benefit from that information in a different manner forever. Um, it's then sort of in your, you have, you've been empowered now. And um, it's interesting because we create, one of the courses we created is a Mediterranean diet. I'm sure everybody recognizes that as something people consider to be healthy. But even going, which I did beforehand, even going through the information with the detail that we did changed my perspective about how impressive that diet is actually. So um, yeah, that's just an example how even if you have information on a subject, walking through sort of the the literature as we have done in this course can change, can, you can actually sort of uh, add to your knowledge in, in a really interesting way. So that's, that's coming. We've got 15 courses that we're launching with, 10 more on the way, including one on paleo eating. So I, what I do is I find people that have written in my, you know, in my consideration, very impressive papers on the subject. And then we work together to then sort of go through this process to get these courses out there. And then now that we have the Mediterranean diet, for example, then we've, I worked with chefs to make traditional Mediterranean cuisine. So now it helps you sort of implement that into your life. Um, then though, am I doing it? We're integrated with about 40 different health services from Fitbit, Garmin, uh, Strava, um, et cetera, to then help you sample or collect data on yourself and then integrate that into, into your own ecosystem, into this health ecosystem and personalize your human OS. And then we're going, we're adding uh, more information about that sort of deeper analysis. So there's lots of different ways to get an angle on your health from simple calculations that are crude and off from like BMI. That's one that we all recognize, body mass index, to something that would be much more sophisticated, like, you know, deeper analysis into blood work. So that's, that is essentially the function of the, of human OS, the, the high level idea of it is it's a we I call it a personal health mastery platform. The idea here is that we really we can't outsource our core competency in our health. Um, and in fact, the idea of doing that, I think leads to a lot of problems. And it doesn't mean that you can't work with other health professionals like coaches and doctors, et cetera, mm-hmm. probably should. But they are not going to be healthy for you, and nobody will make more decisions about your health than you will across your life. And so if you want to get outcomes that you that you would want, then you need to have a certain degree of expertise. And the good thing is, is we have a lifetime to learn new information. But I, what I think is probably the most important thing is to have the right mindset of what a health, a personal health expert, uh, which we all should pursue, should pursue. Um, what is that right mindset? And that is somebody who is you know, always looking for ways to in, to stay engaged, looking for new things to learn, um, testing their knowledge, testing themselves. So it's trying to understand what's known in the world, trying to understand themselves really well, and then looking for ways to then sort of mix all of this into a, an effective daily health practice. So things you do day by day. 
that continually build on the knowledge that you build that make your practice of trying to be healthy increasingly more effective. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, Brad and I have talked about this on some past podcasts, this idea of, you know, mastering your own health. We say N equals one all the time, right? And this idea of, you know, when you're trying to get someone to buy into a particular, you know, health-promoting system, whether it's primal or paleo or Mediterranean diet or the Maffetone, you know, method or any of those, that there's this baseline buy-in that really is supported by understanding the science and why you're doing it, right? And that's how you make it self-relevant and you make the goals intrinsic. Mm -hmm. But I do think that, you know, one of the challenges in today's age, right, is just the absolute overload of information out there. And not just information, but sometimes Mm -hmm. bad information. And the fact that in any any type of health intervention you pursue, you're going to find one corner of the internet that swears it's the only path to health. Mm -hmm. And then you know, another corner of the internet that swears that you're going to be killed imminently if you do this, right? And so as I find personally for myself and then also trying to help people understand the logic behind the, you know, the primal you know, methodology is that there is um, so much information out there that you almost don't know where to start. And it's, you know, it involves identifying the experts. And then there's also the tuning out of the of the noise, right? And not just the noise, but the, also the recognition that there are multiple paths to health and that part of this is finding the one that both feels most compelling for you and also actually works for you. And that's where the the measuring comes in, right? I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we all know the term fake news these days mm-hmm. because the, fake new, the term fake news is in the news every single day. Uh-huh. We've been in... It, it's the idea is that it is either 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 just poor and poorly done information or intentionally misleading. But health science suffers from that as well. Uh, and you're right. If anybody, it's a red flag when anybody tells you that it's one way or the highway. Right? This is the way to do it. And it's one of the reasons why, even though I was using the Mediterranean diet course and recipes as an example of how we're doing it, we're also creating courses on other dietary approaches. And my what I would encourage everybody to do is learn the best analysis of every different sort of diet um, that's out there. Even if you choose to pursue one path, right? I want to do paleo or I want to be Mediterranean, whatever that might be, you get a much better, you know, more three-dimensional understanding of nutrition when you understand sort of the different approaches that a dietary style, you know, what are the results that they've yielded? What do we know about that diet? There really is no, there is no clear answer there, but that doesn't mean that you can't sort of, you know, understand what is known. And then like you were saying, do some self-experimentation and the tools that are going to enable us to do more robust uh, data analysis on ourselves are going to become increasingly more sophisticated. One of the risks of doing end of one experimentation is over attribution of a finding. So you're like, oh, I ate a a teaspoon of peanut butter last night. I got a lot of REM sleep. You know, that could be a false positive, right? Right. There could be absolutely no association there, but you know, we know that we have a confirmation bias. So we, we sort of tend to look for confirming an existing hypothesis that we have and, or a belief system that we have. Um, But what we really need is big data and algorithms working on the information that you're collecting, Mm -hmm. triangulating multiple different sources of that, whether it's you know, lowest daily heart rate and heart rate variability and amount of daily steps that you're taking and the amount of REM sleep and non-REM sleep and total sleep and sleep timing, right? And all of these different markers that we can now 
you know, instrument ourselves with these passive sensors that can collect this information and the reliability of that data is, is increasing every year. And eventually the big the big data component behind that, all the data looking at thousands of people that are using a system and then actually making predictions based off of your data and group data to then say, we've identified opportunities for you. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. So for someone like me who has not gotten super into the measuring, you know, I've always kind of defaulted to more subjective measures. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about the types of things that are available right now in terms of measurement for, you know, the average, let's say, you know, kind of starting from the most basic to yeah. kind of to moving up the scale in terms of advance, both just what's available and then maybe tell us a little bit about where you would recommend starting for someone who is, you know, let's say coming off maybe a more traditional dietary approach like the SAD and has been, you know, exercising according to the, you know, go hard or go home and is now starting to feel like this isn't working for them, mm-hmm. what are some pieces of data that someone might want to collect in terms of both kind of understanding where they are now and then understanding where they might want to be in the future? Yeah, so for me, the, the personal health expert is, for one, trying to work off of the world's best health information, but is also using uh, open to using the world's best health technology to support their process. Mm-hmm. Right now, those time sometimes those things are juxtaposed inappropriately. So it's it's either either or zero sum game. If you're if you're tracking, then you know you're sort of not paying attention to how you feel. That these things can happen. They're limitations, but they're not unaddressable. And so what I would say is we've we know that with self tracking, it's the, some of the earliest the earliest form was a step counter. Uh, but we also know that, but they didn't really grow in popularity. What was more popular were, were heart rate monitors, like from Polar, the Finnish company. Um, there was some value that you could attain from that, particularly for serious athletes that could then construct training regimens around heart rate, you know, estimates of heart rate maximum or or actual real uh, tested heart rate maximum, and then you'd work off percentages and you can construct training programs off of that. So those are some of the earlier versions. And then in the mid, around 2010 or 2007, excuse me, I think Fitbit launched their product, which made the pedometer a lot more interesting than it was previously. So before they were sort of big, ugly, and they were not wireless, but with the basically cell phone technology that made you know, wireless sensors, APIs for data streaming and exchange, and, uh, you know, Bluetooth technologies. You could wear these small sensors now that were a lot more appealing in terms of how they look. Mm-hmm. And you could collect something simple like steps. Um, now that, I've heard people within the community talk about how that's not actually that very, it's not very important. And that actually, I think, is one of the problems with people who are using people who are using like Fitbits for a couple of weeks and then they stop using it is that if you're not really certain of its value, then it, it won't merit uh, uh, dealing with its friction. Right. right? I, I got to charge it. Right. You know, it, it's, it's not like with these Fitbits you just put or type like, you know, those types of devices you put them on mm-hmm. and then you wear them for a year. It's like, you have to charge it every couple of days. Right. And so, yeah. So those, you know, then different devices came out into the marketplace um, they're kind of doing the same thing. They started to add sleep to what they could detect. Now, um, there's something called actigraphy, and that has been used in sleep research for a very long time. And it's looking at movement uh, and then comparing movement over the course of a night to 
validated polysomnographic recordings of sleep. So those algorithms have been tested. So you, you can basically predict what stage of sleep you are in just by the movement pattern that you are manifesting. So that's now they've been adding that. I'm using now the aura ring. I saw your aura ring earlier. Yeah, yeah. And, and by I'm, the way, I will mention that everybody at PaleoFX, like everybody who took the stage at PaleoFX, it felt like had an aura ring. I'm sure that's an exaggeration, but aura rings are yeah. are very popular right now. Yeah, yeah. And so, the, I mean, I've, I've been a big fan of, of Fitbit for a long time, um, and I'm a, a fan now of aura ring as well. Um, they both have their strengths and, and weaknesses. The site of detection of the aura ring is superior to Fitbit's wrist-worn devices because, um, for one, this is sampling at 240 times per second versus 12 times per second for mm. the Fitbit. This is this is sampling on the venous side, so veins give less of a good mm. data, get, give less good data than arteri- arterial measurement. Mm-hmm. Um, but this can detect, so this can detect heart rate variability. It can t- detect sleep stages very well. Um, it can detect movement. What the Fitbit has is big data because they have so many millions of people using their system. So they can actually give you good, they can sort of uh, make the data that they collect. They can do better with the data they collect, given that the fact that they have so much data and they've got big data crunching those numbers. So they, um, yeah, so they, they it's it, it kind of interesting how that is now factoring into like sort of what is the needed resolution of these devices right. in order for them to be like really effective. Um, but then this one can give you, you know, feedback. So it's haptic feedback, which is just a buzz. It can give you feedback in terms of just looking and seeing your steps. Um, the Apple Watch really blew it because they have sort of a complicated algorithm. I mean, it's a it's a good idea in theory, but they're trying to promote a certain amount of calories expenditure per day, standing, and then some sort of low intensity, and then a certain amount of activity every day. But it's a little overprescribed, in my opinion. Um, steps are easy. It's a measurement of low intensity physical activity. So it's just your pattern of physical activity that is not considered exercise, but is considered sort of on, it's, it's, it helps to counteract sedentary behavior. Mm-hmm. And, um, I look at that independent of the exercise that I do, right. but it also can contribute to your overall sort of activity that you are doing, right? right. Low intensity and high intensity. And so it's a, you know, it, it should be like time, right? Cause you glance down, you know, in order for you to t- check your time, you don't want to open an app. You don't want to navigate into the app and then it just, you, it's too much friction, right? Same with steps. You want to be able to look at your watch and say, oh, I've got 12,000, you know, I've got 1200 steps right now and just do that multiple times across the day. And that's where a tracker goes from something that is just tracking information to something that I consider performance enhancing. Uh-huh. Because if it's giving you t- real time feedback at a time that you can do something about it, then if you attend to this device and you empower it with value and think that steps are important and I'm going to try to get my goal of 10,000 steps per day, you're going to stand up on a call, you're going to pace around, you're going to go for a walk, and it can change how you live. And I hear people say, well, yeah, I wore it for a little while. I kind of got a general sense of how many steps I was taking and then I just didn't feel like I needed it anymore. I've been using this for years and it still modifies my behavior because I let it. But you need the education if you think of steps as a cancer preventing, heart disease preventing, you know, health promoting activity independent of exercise, then steps is now important. And now we have a, a, a tool that can actually help to support getting a good amount of steps. If you're uncertain, like, ah, oh, steps are terrible. If you think of this as a bad exercise tracker, right? right versus like a good just step someone, counter. Like some like little tiny dictator you wear on your wrist ordering you to stand yeah. up and you don't understand. Why beyond the fact that maybe you're just trying to lose five pounds and you think the tiny dictator is going to help you? Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, totally. And there's been there's a study out not that long ago that said that people that wore these devices didn't didn't actually lose weight and even gain some. And there was some commentary in the in the community that said, "Yeah, see, I I knew that they were sort of a, a waste of of time and effort." But I have, don't think that's a good analysis because weight is a very complex, you know, multifactorial right. process to to control right. that. Now, if you exercise and you don't lose weight, that doesn't mean that exercise isn't valuable. It just means that it's not the only thing that matters in order for you to adjust your adjust your body fat levels up or down. So, um, yeah, you just have to be kind of careful with your analysis and how you are ascribing value to these things. But steps unto, in and of themselves have enough data behind it that it is they're they're valuable. So, um, yeah, and then there's uh, I think a lot of people that are actually endurance athletes. If you're used to measuring and monitoring your activity in a different way, then sometimes it can be hard to start to, to view something that seems as sort of mundane as steps as actually valuable. But across the lifespan, if you walk about 10,000 steps per day and you're also getting bursts of physical activity in your life, you're going to do really well. And that's much better than, you know, I was really, I was very fit a couple times in my life, but then I had long stretches of being somewhat sedentary when I got off my rhythm. And that can happen too for the person who sees themselves as athletic, but then doesn't see sort of a, a, a an alternative approach to maintaining physical activity in their lives when they're off their reg, their, reg, their regimen of training. I mean, I think that you know one of the things we talk about at Primal Endurance is that you know your endurance athletes are participating in their sport, and that's one component of their life. And the way that they approach their training and racing, but mostly their training, can contribute to their health or not. We are also extremely concerned about the other, you know, 22 hours of your day where you're not training or doing whatever it is, because the idea of being a healthy endurance athlete is at least as much about the times when you're not training. And so many endurance athletes do all this tracking and measuring and thinking about their, you know, their steps and their heart rate and their caloric intake and their fueling and whatever for those one to two to four hours a day or, you know, whatever they're doing. And then the rest of the time, they're just living life as if those other hours aren't the hours that are the more important, the recovery, the, the fueling, you know? And so I really want to talk about what, you know, our our people know about monitoring their heart rate, right? They know about, about tracking their heart rate. Hopefully, you know, we're, we know about not being sedentary, outside of our training hours, you know, we preach a lot about, you know, don't become the active couch potato who Mm -hmm. runs 10 miles and then sits for the rest of the day and then moves from their couch to their car, to their couch again. Um, But, you know, the, the idea that we can use tracking to help support recovery, I think is really interesting. And I know that the one that we talk about a lot is HRV, the different ways you can measure it and kind of what the current thinking is in terms of what you can learn from, from tracking your HRV. Yeah. So I have less expertise than many on, on this subject, but generally heart rate variability, HRV has been a validated measure of physiological stress for, I think it started in maybe the sixties by a Bulgarian man uh, who invented the algorithm an academic so what the, what is this heart rate variability? Well, if you look at the characteristic pattern of a heartbeat, then scientists and clinicians will look at every uh, part of that heartbeat and give it a, a sort of a, a number. So 
what HRV is looking at is the RR interval. So the space between those two parts of the R interval between two heartbeats. The more variability that there is, is actually a measurement of physiological, uh, it means that you're more in parasympathetic tone. Mm -hmm. And that tends to be a measure of lower physiological stress. So while it's difficult to then look at one absolute number and give something prescriptive basis off of it, typically the way that HRV works is people will monitor it for a period of time and you get a baseline that's relative to you. And then you can see, is my HRV levels higher or lower? And depending on how that information is presented to you in whatever app you're using, then you can you know, modify your training based off of that level of stress. Now, I used to be the strength and conditioning coach, assistant head strength and conditioning coach for the University of San Francisco. And we did, we worked with 13 different teams for year-round training protocols. And at the time, we didn't have, you know, this level of, you know, diagnostics to, I mean, we had some things, but we were interested in doing morning cortisol at one point, and we weren't able to do that just because we were testing blood. But we were looking for ways to figure out physiological stress with the goal of creating more personalized programs. Because if you think about a team, right. team sports tend right. to be sort of how we treat health and society. It's like everybody's right. doing the same thing, right. right? But you can really, you know, what that ends up tends to, you know, tends to be very good for the people that recover really well. And, um, you know, I, they people that recover really well are sort of suited for like that sort of daily high high intensity stuff. But you can have somebody that's very, very skilled who recovers more slowly and you can wear them down and essentially create an environment where they are producing at a definitely a suboptimal level right. uh, just because that, the amount of stress that they're incurring is not suited to their own physiology. But if you could read some samplings of that information, then hold back more with them, let more time for recovery, um, you could actually, you know, they could be one of the stars on the team. And... Um, that's a really interesting concept. And so with things like HRV and with the sort of analysis that's going into that now, uh, particularly with athletic sports, then people are now trying to figure out protocols that say, okay, well, here's how you can use this information to, you know, perform better at the sport you love. So, okay. Um, one of the, my questions about HRV is that we know that HRV is a reflection of, of total stress, right? Yeah. And so you can get stress from a poor diet. You can get stress from your boss. You can get stress from, from poor sleep. Um, and then and I would actually back that up and say, not even a poor diet, but a diet that's poorly suited to you. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, how do we disentangle? Like if we're collecting all this data, let's say we, you know, we wake up, we're taking our our heart rate variability, maybe doing some sub- subjective measures of, you know, just how we're feeling that day. We look at our sleep for the night, how many times we woke up, right? All yeah. these things. How do we, you know, actionably use this data? Is it something that you need to, you know, track for weeks or months and look for these big picture, you know, these big patterns and say, okay, you know, over time I've learned that when my heart rate variability and my sleep do this, then that means this, or is it like, how do you use it on a day-to-day level? Right. Yeah. So that, I think earlier in this chat, I indicated that that, uh, the ability to understand our information that we're putting into the system and how these different elements perhaps interrelate, correspond, or sort of predict or explain variability in another, another parameter that we're testing 
that is going to that's difficult to do because we're not most people are not running you know adequate statistics on their own information right they they don't have they're not plugging it all into like r <laughs> like running correlations and predictive modeling and all this exactly but a system could do that for somebody and that's why you know collecting i i use a wireless scale every day and i'm not the reason why is because I think having just more information that's pretty easy to collect. Like I, it's part of my morning, I wake up in the morning, I step on my scale, and that takes about five seconds. It's not something that I'm attending to every day, but I now have a time series record of my weight over years. Right. Um, but that can be one other piece of information that now I have more data on myself that I can then, you know, as the sophistication of these algorithms um, increase, the more data points you have in there, the more you can understand yourself in different ways. Ways that are difficult to perceive or know now without sort of that analysis being run for you. Um, Because not everything, you know, we have, we can sort of falsely attribute cause to things that we think are happening and and we could be wrong. And we can miss opportunities that are there in front of us, but they're just hard to detect because the signal is the signal frequency or strength is sort of low periodic and frequent. It's just hard to like really understand what's going on there. So, so yeah, so generally that is going to be, I think a really big step for personalization of, of, you know, health and medicine is sort of taking all of these different signals and as it becomes easier and easier to get blood markers, which there's some really exciting technology coming downstream, which is going to make that much more frictionless, then we're going to have a lot better insight into understanding what is the diet that works really, what are the sort of dietary parameters that work well for us? You know, what should my training be like? And then you can juxtapose that against philosophy about certain goal attainment. Like for me, my my goal is not necessarily athletic performance. It's to feel it's to feel athletic and energetic every day, have really good mental performance. Right. But I have more of a longevity perspective, right. where I want to do everything I can to feel the way that I do now when I'm 80. Um, and so that is how I orient my sort of my goals. But right. the point the point being is that people have different goals, and then you, the idea is you could sort of orient them if you do care. Like, hey, well, I'm. I'm going to be training now for doing a competition and I care to perform well in that. Then I'm going to construct my goals in accordance with that, you know, whatever I want to achieve. And then I can use this data to understand myself along this journey to get there. That's cool. And, you know, I think health is something that you can play with, you know, and not be afraid to sort of like fail, try things and, um, you know, learn what doesn't work. Uh, But, it's going to be a lot easier for far more people to to you know integrate this sort of data into their lives as the tools are kind of doing it for you. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what you you know what we're trying to do with course courses. Right. It's going to make it easier for people to integrate good information in their lives because yeah, people can go out and do a literature review for a month and do a synthesis for two months. Lay it, you know, it's all that's all you can do that. But the fact that we did it for you right. in a manner that you trust, peer reviewed by academics. Lots of levels of quality, you know, sort of reputation earning along the way. You could outsource that activity, and we're going to be able to sort of outsource a lot of components of our health while still sort of being at the seat of directing, you know, where we want things to go. Right. Yeah, I love what you just said about, um, you know, aligning your your health behaviors with your goals because we do in our community have some people who are extremely performance-based and, you know, they're working from, you know, this race to this race and their time matters and their placement matters. And then, you know, there's people like me who, and like you, who are, 
just more about enjoying their sport, doing it for as long as possible, doing it in a way that promotes health and, you know, wanting to live to be 120 and also be doing this for as long as possible and trying to make those different goals compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see a real value in measuring data over a long period of time to be able to understand the impacts of the different behaviors that you're choosing. So maybe mm. not using data to make a daily training decision, but rather say, okay, over the, you know, the four months I was training for this race and I made these decisions with, you know, my diet or my training load or whatever, how did that affect, you know, my health during those four months and for the two months after Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the next time, the next race I prepare for, maybe I make a different decision. Yeah. But what about for the people who do want to make daily decisions? Do you think that, I mean, obviously HRV is the one that most people use, right? So, and then we've yeah. had, okay, and I really apologize to Andrew if I'm attributing this to him and this was not him who said this, but, you know, I think it was Andrew McNaughton, our you know resident coach extraordinaire, who basically said, you know, subjective measurements are the best. If When you wake up in the morning, the most important piece of data to decide, to use to decide if you're going to go out that day is how motivated you feel to go out that day and that that trumps everything else. And then at the same time, we have this ability to use something that is obviously so much more objective. And, yeah. you know, on the one hand, I feel like, you know, with my social psych background, I feel like objective is better. And then there's the, this initial that I feel like subjective is better. And so... Yeah. You know, where do you come down on that for just day-to-day training decisions? Yeah, so this is a super interesting question. Um, my research, in fact, uh, so it is looking at uh, subjective and objective alertness levels uh-huh. and how that would influence dietary choices uh, that people made the next day. And, the, and there, while there was overlap between objective and subjectively measured tiredness, uh-huh. there was also differences. So... Uh-huh. People had made different types of choices depending on how they subjectively felt. But if then there were certain things that only showed up when their reaction time was slow because they were sleepy. So the way that I, you know, I think when we tend to outsource, as we've been discussing, uh, parts of, you know, our health, sometimes we can overdo it and say, well, I'm just going to pay attention to this number, uh-huh. even though that doesn't really reflect how I feel. Right. I do think that navigating the world with a really good dialogue with yourself is a skill that we all need to build. And then having sort of the right mindset and tools available to give yourself what you need in the moment. Mm -hmm. The problem with athletics oftentimes when we grow up is that we're also taught to sort of fight through it because in sports – the, the mentality that enables you to grit it out and push is important. And then it can lead to, you know, perf, you know, good performance as well. It can be a, it can be problematic with, with like sort of a regular health sort of just discussion where it's like, I, I'm going to go in there and if I'm not going hundred percent, then it's not worth it. Um, I look for ways to be physically active all day long. So things that would, you know, perhaps seem completely mundane and not interesting. Squatting down more, doing a little stretching. You know, I, I created something called Intune Training, which stands for integrative and opportunistic training. Uh-huh. And the idea is that you're integrating movement into your day uh-huh. in an opportunistic fashion that, let's say you finish an email, you go do 10 right. bodyweight squats. Right. You have a phone call. You know, you're, you're just looking. You we, The program is all bodyweight oriented, uh-huh. and it just gives you an idea to get sort of like a mixed modality uh, sort of mixed intensity stimulus to the body 
And so what it needs to accompany the right mindset that says like, all right, I'm just going to look for ways to stay active all day long. Right. Um, and I, that is a nice approach to life in addition to then when I try to go do physical, you know, like actual exercise, uh-huh. um, for like, you know, going along bike ride or whatever that is. Um, but the point is, is that that mindset of sort of always thinking there's some movement option for me right now that's good for me. And it's my responsibility to find that. So if I don't feel like making a big push, then I'm going to do a little bit of stretching. I'm going to do some, you know, something light or just do, you know, I'm going to just do like, instead of just trying to whip out, you know, 50 push ups, I'll just do 10, you know? And then right. what I've noticed is that physical, being physically active can generate momentum to, for more physical activity. And the other thing that, you know, I used to teach spinning in, in, for about a decade. Um, what, really have, what have you not done? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> that's incredible. Okay, go on. Sorry. <laughs> so you were teaching spinning, of yeah. course. Yeah. Why not? And I, and? <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I was actually trying to heal an injury and I sort of fell in love with it. I had a, you know, this existing Achilles injury uh-huh. from, and, uh, and so, the instructor. So really you became hot. a spin instructor. <laughs> sure. That's yeah. what we do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's how I usually approach things. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember many times going to teach a class, and I and I was think and I was thinking to myself, like, I do not feel like teaching today. Right. And then I, within five or ten minutes, I felt great. It would be like one of my best classes. And then there was times where I didn't feel that great, and I continued to feel pretty like low energy. Uh-huh. Then there was times where I thought I felt good, and I actually didn't. Right. You know, like I I was thought I was ready for it. And then my performance was poor. So there's sort of like how there can be a mismatch between subjective and objective performance, you know, subjectively how you feel and actually like what your body's ready for. But I think that sort of internal dialogue, that listening to yourself and, you know, I try to be physically active every day, Uh but it's smaller bursts. And, and then the days where my energy is high, it just leads to more activity in my day, more intense. Like I have, this energy that I just can't wait to sort of like get out and go do some, you know, something more robust. Um, so that for me has been really revolutionary. Um, in somebody who's been physically active their whole life, Uh it's been something that I feel like I can maintain forever. Um, but it is a, it's a, it's a, the mindset is really key here. And, um, I know it's kind of going back to what you're saying that, that, so is it subjective only or objective? I think starting off and saying, how do I feel? getting the information about that is objective and saying, what does that tell me? Uh And then having an approach that could be, you know, sort of spontaneous based off of, well, I'm going to, I'm going to start off and I'll see how I feel and I'll adjust what I think I'm going to do based off of how I'm actually performing. That I think is a pretty, that can be a good approach. Um, but of course it might depend. Like sometimes if you have a specific training regimen, you might need to, you know, sort of reconsider there, but for a general approach to things, I think that's good. I mean, I do think that the biggest problem with, endurance athletes is not the getting them up and getting them active. Although obviously the day-to-day activity is the, the, you know, throughout the day, the daily activity is a problem. Although your approach is actually very primal. So yeah. Um, but is the, is the giving themselves permission to listen to the signal that says today is not your day, right? Even whether it's, you know, you don't even lace up your shoes or whether you get out, you get a quarter mile from home and just say, no, thanks. Like, this is just not going to be it today. And I do, I really think that a big part of that is the, you know, kind of the earlier steps when you're talking about the loop is the, is the understanding 
the why you're doing it and the education about, you know, people do believe that there's, you know, one way and that, you know, there are, you know, you have to check all these boxes, right? And there, it, it involves like a level of trust and buy-in that you're, the information that you have within you is as valid as the expert information that you're getting from outside and that the trick to being a successful athlete, healthy person, whatever, is to learn how to integrate those and to understand that the each individual piece of information is a data point, right? That yeah. there's no one that is obviously trumping everything. That this, yeah. you know, that this expert does not know more about what you need today than you do, for example, right? Yeah, that's it's an interesting dialogue. Um, so I'll say two things. One thing when you're talking about, you know, go out for a quarter mile and you and you feel that hey, today's not my day. For me, that was a bit of a, a shift as well because instead of thinking today, today's not a good day because I wasn't able to sort of perform at what I consider to be my best. If you just turn that into a good walk and it was right for you in that moment, today was a great day. Right. Right. Yes. So, absolutely. Right, figuring out how to give yourself what you need, and unless you're sick, some a little bit of physical activity tends to be a great thing, as long as you're not sort of forcing yourself to always have to go harder than what your body wants. Right. And then you've got yes. this sort of available sort of smorgasbord of options in front of you, all of which can make you feel better if you have a that good trusting relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that leads to more consistent. Physical activity, which leads to better energy and more days where you can have higher performance. So that's one thing that I would say. And then the other thing that I would say, which is this interesting philosophical conversation about, you know, trusting yourself versus the the world of literature. You know, some disease processes are multi, you know, multi decade processes, and how you feel in the moment, or even the signals that you're getting back from an you know acutely adhering to something may not sort of yield you can we can convince ourselves to sort of to have the diet that we enjoy the most uh-huh. or whatever the, the pattern is and so it's also good to be mindful about what we know happens in you know when people adopt something for a lifetime uh-huh. because you might not be able to detect a whole lot of difference if you're like 25 but you know, between two different dietary styles, but you do have pretty good conf- pretty good data about what happens when you're doing sort of the traditional Mediterranean, for example. You know, you have a disproportionate amount of centenarians, male centenarians, right. people that are living to 100 with full health their whole life. So you know, it's sometimes this idea of it's whatever's right for me. Like it's it's a way. We have to be careful with that too. Right. So I'm not opposed to, to self, you know, N of one testing and experimentation, but also sort of be careful not to, you know, create your own ecosystem of like your own reality that might actually lead to some issues that you're not happy with. Right. Yeah. I'm assuming that once when you've started the N equals one, you've already done the background work and you're selecting between you know, three options that seem equally health promoting for different reasons. And one of those options is not couch and Cheetos. Right. So, you know, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's more like, am I going to do this style of training or this style of training? Am I going to do weights every week or am I going to periodize? So the kind of things where I'm already choosing between healthy options and now I'm just trying to decide which one both meets my, you know, my goals, my lifestyle, my abilities, my work ethic, you know, all those, you know, those subjective intra-individual variables that 
you know, no one expert can quantify for you, right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'll mention this too, that in my opinion, the Mediterranean diet is probably the the best diet that we have out there. Qual- I'm qualifying that based off of this. We ha- That's what the research tells us because we've had the indication that it's healthy for a while, which has then allowed a period of time for that te- for this style to be tested many, many different ways. Mm-hmm. Paleo is extraordinarily interesting. On head-to-head trials, it, it, in several instances, it's outperformed uh, the Mediterranean diet in terms of promoting certain degrees of uh, you know metabolic health, but it hasn't had the time to have the investigation that the Mediterranean diet has had. And so when we, you know, that that diet has the Mediterranean diet has probably the most evidence on it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best diet that's that's available. That something could be created tomorrow right. that is the best diet that we have. We just won't necessarily know it until it's because it, you know, it's it one study will not answer that question. It takes years of right. asking that question from a thousand different angles, and that just takes time. And that's the frustrating part about health sciences you know, is that we have to sort of piece together the tea leaves to make good choices. But yeah, that that also doesn't mean that while, you know, searching for definitive answers is frustrating, it doesn't mean we don't have good information to go off of now good tech and tools. So it's not a worthless endeavor. And we know, you know, like it's, 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 it's still very much worth, you know, worth trying um, and improving, you know, and trying to make those improvements. I, like I do sort of half paleo, half Mediterranean, and I take Good, a decent amount of supplements um, every day, and and those change. Like what I was taking this year is a little bit different than last year, so I'm always sort of playing and just trying to figure out, you know, if there's ways to perform even better today. And right. it's kind of fun when you identify one, and you're like, I think I learned something. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, I feel like we could record three hours of podcast. <laughs> but I've already kept you Easily. on for like 50 minutes. So I would mm. want to respect your time and wrap up this one. Although I would really love to have you on again as um as a future guest. And we'll talk about the diet stuff and the food stuff and okay. how to how to read the science. I mean, the nutrition science is, I think, even more overwhelming than the exercise science when it comes to you know, looking at the different types of studies that are out there and the conflicting yeah. information. And then of course we have, you know, now the, when we're taping this is right after the whole coconut oil debacle and, um, yeah. you know, and it's just so overwhelming to know how, you know, especially for people who are, you know, maybe less scientifically literate in terms of going back to the original research and reading it yeah. and, you know, who want to rely on the public health message. It can, I mean, the weeds are so thick. It's so, it's, Really, really complicated. I'll, I'll I'll close with this: that um, I am very much a fan of the ancestral method of you know towards being healthy. So, looking at pre-modern lifestyle patterns to try to predict how we should live today in the world that is a very different sort of environment. Mm-hmm. I don't stop there. I think that's a great place to begin. Then you look at the scientific information, try to understand it to some degree. Then you look at yourself, so self-awareness, self-knowledge. Um, and so you have sort of a template to go off of. You have information that sort of confirms, supports, or denies that, and you've got what you know about you. And I think that if you learn the right way, then you start to see patterns that make health less confusing, and actually you start to see some truths there that um, give you more confidence to pursue a, a path of living that feels that is that feels good and that's probably serving you well. And so how you learn, where you learn to get your information from, 
Um, and then how you learn it is, I, I think, a really important, uh, you know, part of the health experts process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I love that you are actually empowering people to be scientists in a manner, right? That you're letting people collect their own data and giving people these tools that are allowing them to dive as deep as they want and really integrate their own self-knowledge with what we're getting from the outside world. We can take it to our health practitioners if we want and, you know, making decisions that they feel, I love the word empowerment, you know, like making, feeling empowered to make decisions that they actually feel have, you know, some scientific basis. And I think that's really important in today's world. So yeah, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank um, you for having me this on. It's been that. a great conversation. I, like I said, I truly could keep you on for four hours. Um, <laughs> I, but... uh, it would be enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'd like to thank you on behalf of our audience. And um, when you humanos.me launches, I will be sure to link to it. In the meantime, they can find you at dansplan.com, right? Dot com? Yes. And so I, what I would say is even now, go to humanos.me because uh-huh. that will redirect to okay. Dan's plan. Okay. So until, and depending on when this comes out, then uh, go, going to humanos.me will take you to the right place for, for now. Okay. And, um, but yeah, yeah, please come take a look. And I've got my own podcast and we, we do a lot of blogging. And my, you know, the way that I approach it is I always try to write in a way that is, um, you know, sort of accurate with the science. Mm-hmm. And I actually will write a scientific sort of piece first and then I'll translate it at the end. So I go back through and say, okay, if I'm talking to somebody who is, who doesn't necessarily have the expertise in the subject, but is interested. All you have to have is the interest, and I will explain things along the way so that you are not getting some banal scientific piece that is sort of not that helpful, but actually you're learning in the process and you don't have to necessarily have a background. All you have to have is interest and, and you'll you'll advance. Yeah, your podcast is super interesting. I would definitely direct people over there. Um, it's The content is very different than ours and it covers a wide range of topics, but... I've mm. learned a lot from your podcast. So definitely, oh, I think that's something our listeners would be interested in. Um, so that's <laughs> humanos.me. So the dot me is the, is the end of the URL. So definitely check it out. And in the meantime, thank you for listening, podcast listeners. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.